0: Then don't make you show yeah Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism. Religion in this melted body. in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left his best. The saga continues. continues. The No Mickey Show.
1: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Khans. It is Thursday, April 29th, 2021. And today, this day, I want to drive a stake through the heart of neoliberal framing and corporate
2: media spin. President Joe Biden
1: gave a good speech last night.
2: Look, in conclusion, as we gather here tonight, the image of a violent mob assaulting this Capitol, desecrating our democracy, remain vivid in all our minds. Lives were put at risk, many of your lives. Lives were lost. Extraordinary courage was summoned. The insurrection was an existential crisis, a test of whether our democracy could survive, and it did. But the struggle is far from over. The question of whether our democracy will long endure is both ancient and urgent. As old as our republic, still vital today. Can our democracy deliver on its promise that all of us created equal in the image of God had a chance to lead lives of dignity, respect, and possibility? Can our democracy deliver the most, to the most pressing needs of our people? Can our democracy overcome the lies, anger, hate, and fears that have pulled us apart? America's adversaries, the autocrats of the world, are betting we can't, and I promise you they're betting we can't. They believe we're too full of anger and division and rage. They look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is sending on American democracy. But they're wrong. You know it. I know it. But we have to prove them wrong. We have to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and we can deliver for our people.
1: Hmm. So what did corporate media and the punditry class do with this speech? Hmm. Frank Luntz.
3: This is the most class-oriented speech that I've heard in a long time. It does harken back to Barack Obama uh, 10 years ago. And there's very much in this speech that indicates that the era of big government is back.
1: Okay, that was the soundbite. The era of big government is back. Okay, you might expect that from Frank Luntz, who you just heard there. He's a Republican pollster trying to frame things in a different way, in a way that will help hmm, his clients. But what about national public radio? Hmm, interesting. Big government is back and three other takeaways from Biden's address to Congress. Or how about this headline on CNN? The era of big government is back with a vengeance. Okay, so what does that headline even mean? Big government is back with a vengeance. Is this like the Marvel Comic Universe version of politics? Vengeance against whom? For what? This isn't all that of what Biden said. He said that democracy has to demonstrate that it can deliver for the people. But with barely breath and certainly not much of a thought, we were plunged right back into a tired, tired, tired trope that Ronald Reagan introduced and a series of democratic presidents then enabled. The idea that government, you know, our government is the problem. The idea that the era of big government is over. This is not about big government or small government. It is about government doing what it should be doing to make lives better. Saying that the era of big government is back is framing the whole debate the way that the neoliberals, the Republicans, and the enemies of working people wanted it framed. We are captives to a soundbite. Ronald Reagan is still winning. So to quote Nancy Reagan, just say no, don't buy this framing. It is the enemy of what we are fighting for. This is not a fight over the size of government. I don't care what size the government is. I care what the government does for the people who are hurting. Because you know what? I'm going to guess that all the people who hate the government love the size of those defense contracts. Hmm, That's a lot of the government. So there are a lot of, of, of working people in this country and around the world right now who are hurting. And so that is why I care what the government does for those working people. And President Biden has put forward plans to help them, you know, surprisingly so. I think he's surprised a lot of folks, but I don't think he has a choice. If you don't like his plans, go ahead and say so. If you appreciate his goals, but don't think this will work, go ahead and say so. If you think taxes to pay for this will do more harm than good, then just say that. I will take you on each time. But it is a meaningful debate. What is not meaningful is this phony trope about big government. As progressives, we can't let the future of our country get reduced to a soundbite about the era of big government being back with a vengeance. It's shallow, it's false. It isn't the debate the country needs. It's actually not the debate the country is having. The debate we need is how to do more. How do we help people climb out of the hole the last 30, 40 years has thrown them into? That is what we need to be debating. Enough. All right. Speaking of Reagan era, we have John Nichols on. I think he was alive during the Reagan era. Pretty sure I was. (laughs) No, but he's on to talk about Walter Mondale, who just passed away. Uh, The legacy of Walter Mondale. Of course, um... You know, an end of a, a certain sort of liberal era uh, has has ended with Walter Mondale passing away. We're going to talk about that with him, and later we have a Run Chowdhury, the new host of the Committee Show, which we'll talk about, and Representative Rab from Northwest Philly. They're going to be talking about today's news, uh, Run's new show. We will be right back. Our next guest does not need an introduction because he's one of our favorite guests. Uh, I, I love when he comes out with something outside of the norm because, as a result, you're the only guest who can talk about it. Um, the legacy, of, I mean, so many people had think pieces on Walter Mondale, um, and I, I, I gotta say, like you just you just offer a different perspective. And I think for this moment specifically, as progressives, uh, as someone who lives in Wisconsin you know, land of of populists and Koch brothers. (laughs) There's a unique take. Of course, I'm talking about John Nichols. John Nichols is the National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation. He is the author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. But... We're gonna talk about another anti-racist, uh, Walter Mondale. You wrote a piece in The Nation, uh, Walter Mondale's decades long crusade for fair housing and the full promise of civil rights. This is about, uh, to the end of his life, as, he, as it says here, Mondale waged the battle against segregation. He had joined as the sponsor of the Fair Housing Act of 1968. John, thanks for joining us.
3: It's an honor to be with you, of course, Nomiki. And, and and I'm delighted that you wanted to talk about this. In fact, I must say, I'm rather surprised that my little story about uh, Walter Bondale uh, got as much attention as it did. And I think it was because so many people uh, wrote about him in the cliched, kind of predictable, oh, he was vice president, and he was, and he was the Democratic nominee for president, and he was. uh, And then they kind of, you know, that was about it. And the truth is, That the greatest story of Walter Mondale had very little to do with his vice Mm -hmm. presidency and very little to do with his candidacy for president. It Mm -hmm. was really that um, as a very young man from a tiny town in Minnesota uh, who, you know, kind of really clawed his way up, worked his way up, whatever the right term is, uh, into politics, uh, made a commitment to civil rights and particularly to open housing that he never abandoned. Hmm. The day he died, he literally in the last, you know, months of his life, uh, the last weeks of his life, Hmm. was still advocating for um, civil rights, for uh, open housing, and most notably for all, everything that extended from that, including uh, a very conscious focus on systemic racism.
1: So let's, let's rewind just a little bit, because um, for the youngsters out there, (laughs) <laughs> who maybe we don't were like
3: to think of ourselves? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for
1: those of us who are not cognizant of Walter Mondale, maybe uh, ever because we weren't alive. I was. I'm just saying. For those of us. It's not me at all. <laughs> um, let's let's just talk about uh, his his his. His poli- the, the more cliche stuff first, the political. But let's get the fundamentals and then get into the the, the nitty gritty. So, uh, what era? How did he come up? Uh, you mentioned Minnesota, small town, clawing his way up. Uh, what what is the the early story of Walter Mondale, and how does that brush up against you know the civil rights era specifically?
3: Yeah, I mean it, Walter Mondale grew up in a place that was about as white as it could get. I mean, that's the the important thing to understand. He was in the upper Midwest in a small town, uh, son of a pastor, grew up in a a pretty religious family. But as in much of the populist upper Midwest of those days, a very, very different time than now, but uh, the populist upper Midwest of those days, uh, people who lived in small towns tended to think that corporate power and a lot of a lot of what happened, you know, in New York or in Washington didn't care about them, mm-hmm. that they weren't particularly well represented. And so that's what fed into populism. And Bondale's parents were supporters of Robert M. La Follette and the progressive mm-hmm. movement. Uh, and in North Dakota or in uh, the neighboring state of North Dakota, the Nonpartisan League in Minnesota, the Farmer Labor Party. And so you had all these independent third parties Right. that really were very mm-hmm. radical. And their radicalism tended to be economic, but along the way, they took in uh, a commitment to a broad democracy, and that made most of them very committed to civil rights. Uh, they were also happened to so be right. very, very anti-war, another, another element of it. And, uh, and so when Mondale came up, he came up in an incredibly intense moment in Minnesota politics, when the Farmer Labor Party was aligning with the Democrats. The Farmer Labor Party had a huge left-wing component, including a communist component within it. Uh, Certainly a lot of socialists. Mm -hmm. The Democrats were not, uh, they were Mm anti-communist, but um, they, because of this radicalism that was there, they were a much more radical Democratic Party than most around the country. And to give you one quick historical note, In 1948, the leader of the drive for a civil rights plank in the Democratic platform, the the National Democratic Party's platform, this is a breakthrough thing. First time they really made this commitment was Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota. And it was in that same year that uh, Walter Mondale met Humphrey and committed, if you will, uh, as a very young man, uh, to this journey, to this uh, deep, deep commitment to civil rights uh, and to a very liberal uh, vision for America.
1: Hmm. Was that a trend uh, during that era that that you'd find a couple of populists, anti-war populists who ended up having, uh, maybe it was less political. There were, there were fewer political dynamics, at least locally, in terms of stepping out in favor of, of radical civil rights platforms, because it didn't, you know, if you're coming out of New York, there are all these dynamics, you have to weigh out, you know, these different situations, you have different communities that you need to respond to. There's unions, there's trades, it's all this stuff to kind of, but if you're in a place like Vermont with Bernie Sanders, like Minnesota, where it's a seemingly very white population, there's less at stake to step out and be courageous.
3: I think I think that you make a really good point. And, and sociologists will tell you that, mm-hmm. um, that in the history of this country, there have been a lot of cases where people said great things right, mm-hmm. and looked to be very, very courageous, but in fact, it was kind of easier right, that they came from a place or they came from a circumstance where you could take a, a bold stand and you didn't face necessarily uh, that much of a political cost. And there's there's truth in that. Hmm. Uh, Certainly, I I think the the most courageous advocates for civil rights are um, people like uh, I think it's Charles Weltner out of uh, uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Mm -hmm. uh, the former congressman who, in 1966, sitting Democratic congressman who had voted for civil rights legislation coming out of Atlanta, um, was going to be forced to run on a ticket with Lester Maddox, a segregationist. Uh, and in that state, they had a loyalty oath. And the congressman quit the race and quit his seat. He gave up his career. Wow. Run on a ticket with a segregationist. So those are, without a doubt, those are people that we hold up as incredibly courageous. There's simply no question of that. But I will uh, I'll, I'll give you a twist on Mondale here as well. Yeah. Um, when Mondale got to the United States Senate, And he was appointed to replace Humphrey and then uh, came in as a, uh, he was elected in 1966. 1966 was the year of backlash in America. Yeah, And it was an ugly, ugly moment in American history. Uh, The Civil Rights Act had been passed. The Voting Rights Act had been passed. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we're really, we're on the march here. And but in fact, in that 1966 election, there was a big pushback against civil rights Mm -hmm. and against the advances of the movement. You saw segregationists winning in a lot of southern states, but you also saw in a lot of northern and western states candidates stepping up and saying, this is going too far. One of them was Ronald Reagan. He was (laughs) elected in California, um, actually speaking in favor of segregated housing.
1: And oh, I'm, said, shocked.
3: oh yeah, I'm shocked. I know I'm shocking. He said, Oh, I don't he used believe- to be
1: a Democrat though. What are you talking about?
3: <laughs> but the interesting thing <laughs> about Reagan was he said, Oh, I don't believe it in myself, but I don't think we should make people desegregate. Oh. I don't think we should have he opposed open re- housing legislation. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why Reagan got elected governor of California in nineteen sixty-six. And he wasn't alone. Across the country, this was the big boom thing. So they came back in 1966 into that next Congress, controlled by the Democrats, but with a lot of Southern Democrats who were segregationists, a lot of Republicans who had come in on this backlash wave. And they had a problem because the Civil Rights Act, did while it was terrific in a lot of ways, didn't include open housing. And so at this fundamental issue, this question of can you live where you want to live? Can you live where you can buy a house or rent an apartment uh, was unaddressed and it needed to be addressed. Lyndon Johnson knew it needed to be addressed. Herbert Humphrey knew it needed to be addressed. Civil rights leaders who had been passionately advocating it knew that it needed to be addressed. It was 1966, 67 there that Dr. King was coming North and he was saying, yeah, we've had some progress in the South, but now we have to talk about segregated Northern cities Cities like Chicago, cities like Minneapolis in Minnesota. And uh, this became a real tension point in Congress. And no senior Democrat wanted to take the open housing legislation. No one, would, would, sign it. No one would sign on.
1: None of them, even the ones from. Oh, interesting. So, even, so
3: it wasn't ahead. that they were all opposed to it. Yeah. It was they didn't want to step out and be, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to be the leader for open housing because they had just seen Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's dad, a popular governor of California, get beat in California, the supposedly hippie liberal state um, by Ronald Reagan running against open housing. And so there was a real there were a lot of people that were really scared to step up. And Lyndon Johnson looked around the Senate and he found the youngest member or I think the youngest member at the time, this new kid. He was still in his 30s, from Minnesota, Walter Mondale. Unreal. And he said to Mondale, would you, here you are, brand new senator, basically. Would you (laughs) take the lead on open Like Like (laughs)
1: off. Yeah, a
3: little bit. Yeah, not too much older.
1: Or young Biden.
3: (laughs) Uh, Exactly. And so he he went to Mondale. And Mondale, not stupid. He had grown up in, in politics. He'd been in it, you know, since he was a kid. Uh, he knew what he was being asked. He knew that this there was a you know some political risk here, and this is where we come full circle on your your question about where courage comes in. He knew there was some political risk, but he was absolutely committed to civil rights. There was no question. He was and he knew that open housing, as he spoke often, open housing was the key to so many other things. Because if people could move to live where they wanted to live, then you could start to really speak about desegregating neighborhoods. Desegregating schools, desegregating business areas. Right. There was so much that extended from it. It was really at, at the heart of, of the matter. Now, this open housing legislation was being opposed by the realtors.
1: There uh, we go. This is oh, my it's Yeah, next yeah you know where I'm going with
3: this. Coming yeah. In. Yeah. All yeah. Home builders didn't like it. a yeah. um, lot of Democrats didn't like it. There were actually Democrats saying, Well, come on, that's that's going too far, right? That's We're for civil rights as long as it's telling George Wallace to get out of the schoolhouse door. But when you're actually saying we're going to desegregate Boston or Chicago, that's bringing it close to home. And um, Mondale found one ally in the initial stages, a very uh, key ally, and that was Ed Brooke, a Republican senator from Massachusetts, the first African-American senator elected since Reconstruction.
1: Didn't he also have an affair with uh, Barbara Walters? Sorry, side note.
3: <laughs> talk of that, but we. But we're no, not she admitted it.
1: She admitted it. I know that's off topic. Sorry. Just last, time, last time I heard of that, that's I, I haven't heard the name in a while, and then I. Ed Brooke yeah. was a remarkable, uh, a
3: remarkable figure. He was he was a very liberal Republican, a courageous Republican who, um, remarkably, got elected in that 1966 year. Beating back backlash politics. And the interesting thing was that Mondale and Brooke knew each other. They had both been state attorneys general.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: And they had, and they were both about the same age. And they both knew that this thing had to move. Now, Brooke was in the minority. He was a Republican in a Democratic-controlled Senate. So Mondale had to take the lead, but it really was the two of them together. And they came back at this again and again, and they pushed it and they built the coalition for it, but they they got it to a point in the Senate where they actually got to a majority. But they couldn't get the House to move on it because Southern segregationists controlled the rules committees and most much of the structure of the House. And the Republicans and the Southern segregationists in the House were preventing it from moving forward. April 4, 1968, Dr. King is assassinated in Memphis. Uh, the country is, you know, it, it's... It's a terrible moment for America. Uh, There's urban unrest everywhere. Um, And the next day, Walter Mondale went to the floor of of the Senate and he said, look, if we are going to keep this country together at this point, we have to complete the mission of civil rights. Mm -hmm. He gave one of the most passionate addresses of his life. And he began to work with Senate members and House members to try and break this bill three, and uh in an incredible fury of activity over a period of a week they got the house committee chairs to give up they got a couple of key republicans to move over uh thanks to brooke as well as mondale they got the senate to commit to an alliance with the house on it and they had the open housing bill on lyndon johnson's desk one week after dr king was killed it was an incredible thing, which probably could not have happened at any other point in, you know, because you're coming on to the Nixon era and Southern strategies and all that. And so in that key moment, Walter Mondale and Ed Brooke broke the barriers. They broke it open. They got the law passed. And this was at a time when even Bobby Kennedy and people like that were not stepping up for this but they did at this moment, they recognized it was something they had to do. And, and so incredibly, uh, you know, Mondale could have rested on his laurels then, and said, you know, well, I, I did something good and it's, I'll get my little place in the history books. No, uh, Walter Mondale then kept going back to the Congress, every Congress to get the funding for it, the funding to investigate discrimination, the funding wow. to pay for housing development, and when he became vice president, he wrestled with the Carter administration on it. Um, as a presidential candidate, he talked about it and made it central to what he did. In fact, that was one of the reasons why the Democratic Leadership Council and people like that were so unsettled by Walter Mondale, because he seemed to be so committed to this multiracial, yeah. multi-ethnic coalition and bringing labor in as well. But the, the, the closing part of the story on right, this, this element of it is that When he was no longer vice president, when he was no longer a presidential candidate or anything like that, he never let go. Uh, There were essays he wrote, uh, forums he participated in, uh, documentaries that he did uh, well into just recent years. Even as he got into his 90s, he still made his deep, long commitment to open housing. And he, he challenged Democratic and Republican presidents on it. And he also recognized its connection to systemic racism, to the extent that last summer in Minneapolis, when George Floyd was killed, murdered. uh, And when there were big demonstrations, Minneapolis's political elites were divided on that. They didn't quite know, you know, what to do because their city itself was, you know, look, there were riots, there was challenges and stuff like that. And you saw a lot of kind of Uh, You saw great leadership from people like Ilhan Omar and some others, but you also saw caution on the part of a lot of folks. Walter Mondale wrote an essay for the Minneapolis Star Tribune in which he said, look, civil rights is a journey. Open housing is a journey. All of this is a journey. And we have been too long without, you know, like taking the next steps we need to do to address systemic racism. And so he said, the people who are in the streets, here in Minneapolis, I thank you.
2: Well, think
1: about it. It's like, uh, you know, as, as you're telling the story of, of, of 1968, you know, so many heroes and advocates and, and um, uh, martyrs uh, got attention, shook the world, but they were so prevalent. They were so um, well known, right? There was an emotional attachment to them, and here we are. How many years later? Sixty years later. Almost sixty years later. Fifty-five years later, and the power of like this, this, this communication, the the internet, whatever it is, being able to have cell phone footage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, as much as it's a journey, and as much as it's been a slow journey, and uh, there has not been fair justice in so many ways. Is, it is fascinating that now the individual story of people that we don't personally know are connecting with a broader audience. And so the way that the world was shook in the last year, because of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, so many others. I mean, this is this has been going on for you know since since camera footage has been released. That that folks are now having kind of like the same reaction to a, a, a person that they didn't know as they did to MLK. And so there's something um, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think
3: it's special about that. I think the point that you're making is a, is a key one here. And obviously um, the, the assassination of Dr. King was so jarring to the whole nation. Um, and it was also at a different time, at a time when this country actually did move when things happened, right? You know, you had something and you said, wow, well, let's pass some open housing legislation. Whereas now we have so many barriers in, in our politics to it. Um, and it's like, i Interviewed Mondale over the years and and saw him in, in many many settings. One of the things that he always focused on, and I think it's important for us to as well, is that there's always a movement there. You know, there's you know, you talk about a former vice president. Mondale had privilege. He had prominence in that, and it happened that this was a passion of his. But he, as he did in last year when he thanked the the folks who were in the streets, he recognized that that you know. There was this this long journey, never ended. There were always people who were stepping up and trying to get the issues in into focus. These were the civil rights campaigners uh, who went south in the 1940s, not the 1960s, but the 1940s. And these were the folks who uh, organized for fair housing in Northern cities at, at great risk in places like Boston and, and Chicago and other spots. And Mondale recognized that he was lucky to be a part of, of that movement. That that he, he he resisted, and I think there was a certain Midwestern modesty, he resisted the hero image, right? Or the that that he was somehow
1: Well, he's a, also a white man. He's a white working man. with a civil rights. I mean, you you can't be the I mean, unless That's you're the right. president signing the Civil Rights Act, it's 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 very hard to be the hero in comparison to people who are literally getting lynched.
3: That's exactly right. And that's something, but to his credit, there were many of the people who were prominent in those days who didn't seem to recognize that or, or who accepted the name,
1: app. some names, come on. They're all oh. dead now.
3: No, no. Well, I, I think it was, <laughs> I, I think you saw a, a tremendous number of prominent Democrats yeah. who um, stepped up uh, and, and who frankly weren't as courageous uh, and who, um, you know, in, in hindsight, they get credit simply because they were Democrats, and now the Democrats and Republicans have divided so much. Mm-hmm. And what people lose sight of is that there were deep divisions within the Democratic Party okay. about whether to commit fully to uh, fighting racism, to being anti-racist. And um, and Mondale, the interesting thing is, when I wrote about this, I was struck by how many people responded to it, and um, and how many people didn't know it. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I don't want to go, want to go so far as to say that Mondo was fine with that, but it, was, it wasn't to some extent an extension of the fact that he kept pushing on these issues, but he didn't necessarily go out of his way to say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm this great guy. He, he would appear, and there were, there were forums he appeared at, you know, and kind of down to the neighborhood level as a former vice president. That's amazing. Where, and, you know, documentaries and things he made for fair housing groups, um, it, he there wasn't the celebrity game with him. It but was also it was it was like a, it was a different era too.
1: Themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but the, 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 there, there is something to be said about when you say this moment um, before the DLC started to take hold, before Nixon. Uh, it, it, I think what's really kind of amazing about this story in particular is being a populist, a white male populist from um, the upper Midwest uh, in a moment when (sighs) monopoly lobbying style politics that we live in now and all the, the DLC and the neoliberalism uh take over the democratic party all this stuff hadn't happened yet so, so there was just like this i mean even johnson like when you're talking about johnson finding him oh can we imagine biden maybe calling up joe manchin or john ossoff or whatever and like i mean john ossoff isn't in a position where he needs to carry a bill first off find a bill that biden can't that, that he wants to introduce that no senators were like willing to introduce doesn't exist, at least something that's more progressive.
3: Well, or go out and, and, and determine to do it. And I think- Yeah, your the point determination, is, the leadership. Well-made. Let me give you a, just a, a little bit of a, maybe insight on this thing, that um, the Democratic Party was so different, despite its divisions within it, right? There were so many touchstones within the Democratic Party to be pro-labor, right? To be strongly pro-labor. To be um, in favor of civil rights, although some were not as courageous as others, uh, and a host of other a host of other commitments, and um, that in 1984, because here we're talking very positively about um, about Walter Mondale, and I, and I think appropriately so, but in 1984, um, I was a young person who was very committed to the movement against apartheid and and a host of other issues. I thought Mondale was, you know. He's a very typical Democrat. I was a supporter uh, that year of Jesse Jackson. And I, I was enthusiastic so. about
2: yeah. Jesse
3: Jackson's candidacy as I was in 88. And and so, uh, but I think that that's not to diminish Mondale. It's to speak about the change in the party, right? That a a guy who to a young activist or some young, young person was, uh, you know, just not not that big a deal, right? He was he was he's a you know kind of a mainstream Democrat. I'm more interested in this you know this change politics that, that Reverend Jesse Jackson was was bringing to the to the moment. Um, just as I think today, a lot of young people are very excited about um, Bernie Sanders as opposed to uh, Joe Biden. Now the the fascinating thing on it is that in hindsight, we look back at Mondale and we say, "Wow, you know." A life well lived. There was quite a few things he did that were good. There are, there are things I'd be critical of, and, I, and we could talk about that. But the fact is, this long journey on fair housing to the end of his life, to the point where when he passed, uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general of Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman from Minneapolis, uh, put out these really laudatory statements about Walter Mondale because they knew, right? They knew he had been there through this, he had been there through this long journey. And yet in his moment, when he ran for president, you know, he, he seemed more of a, more of a typical Democrat.
1: Is that because he was attached to the Carter administration though?
3: Uh, to some extent he, you know, remember he was Carter's liberal, right? Of course. When, When Carter ran, he needed a liberal running mate, uh, and Mondale served that role. Uh, but no, the party changed radically and, and it's only now beginning to kind of come back, I think, to a, a more, frankly, just a more realistic place.
1: So optimistic.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I'm somewhat optimistic. I'm I, 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 I mean, was, listen. Why did he have a better speech <laughs> he, last night than I expected?
1: He did, right? yes. Yeah. That was and, our opening. <laughs> yeah. And then NPR was like, the era of big government is back with a vengeance. It's like, oh, Jesus oh, Christ. Let's oh. Well, but 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 it, like my opening was all about how we have to attach ourselves to these right wing like Reagan esque talking points, and you know the reality is is that like the majority of people under fifty were old enough to even be brainwashed by the that community. It, it, it's
3: it's just a yeah. But, No, let's talk for a moment about that brainwashing. if We can, because that's the interesting thing is only in hindsight do we begin to realize what happened to the Democratic Party, because in 1984. Walter Mondale was a Democratic nominee for president of the United States. He beat Gary Hart and Jesse Jackson for the nomination in a, a relatively intense uh, primary process. He, instead of saying, oh, well, I, I beat this young guy. I beat the activist guy. I'm going to be the very mainstream guy. He said, no, no. I want these people. I want to I want to pull this all together. And he ran for President of the United States, the Democratic nominee, with a deep commitment to economic and social and racial justice, a questioning of America's foreign policies, not as much questioning as I would have liked. Um, but, you know, he ran as, as a liberal. And he got beat. I mean, he got beat badly. I mean, Reagan, Reagan, you know, swept to power. but um, but the fact of the matter is, that instead of saying, okay, you know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, right? The elites in the Democratic Party, the economic elites in the Democratic Party said, never again, we're never gonna run you know, a liberal campaign for the presidency of the United States. We're going to form the Democratic Leadership Council. We are going to bring bigger money into the Democratic Party, and we are gonna move this party to the center, even the center right, we are going to make it a corporate-friendly political party. And the truth of the matter is that after that 1984 campaign, um, you saw a you know what they did in McGovern, right? They were like, "Oh, we can't be too anti-war, or we'll get beat like McGovern." Just because that was one election, right? Or we can't be too you know pro-labor because we'll get beat like Mondale. Well, think if the conservatives had done that, they said, "Well." We can't be conservative because Barry Goldwater got beat, or we can't be conservative because Ronald Reagan didn't win the nomination in 1976. Conservatives didn't do that. Republicans didn't do that. They said, "Okay, we got to we got to rework this a little. We got to calculate a little more. But there are certain principles that we believe in and we're not going to abandon them. Well, the Democrats in the 80s, late 80s and 90s chose to abandon and the reality was that they ended up with a situation where they got power, right? And then what did they do? They undid New Deal laws. They, in case of Clinton, uh, they literally undid, you know, welfare programs. I mean, they it, they they signed the Defense of Marriage Act. You know what I mean? This is these were Democrats, and it was so interesting. Became the center right group.
1: You know, you know the the, the old Cuomo line. Uh, you know, you you campaign in uh, poetry and you govern in prose. They were the the excuses of that time, and and I hate to say this because we have like only a couple minutes left. But the excuses at that time were very much like, well, we're doing it because we want to win elections. Well, the reality was that. As you know, I don't have to tell you, we lost Congress for the first time in, what, really? 30 years yes. as a result of this? And then under Obama, we lost 1,200. I'm sorry, what part of your strategy of, like, devastating this country, wrecking it, taking a wrecking ball this country to, to you know, racist uh, economic austerity, taking on unions? None, none of those things actually won the elections other than maybe a presidency every, every couple of cycles when the Republicans had gone too far. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm of the position that I don't think it was an actual strategy to, it was an excuse. So when I hear Elaine K. Mark, uh, Google her if you don't know who she is, not you, but everybody watching. When she says things like, oh, we can't have another McGovern map, you know, after 2016, looking at Bernie Sanders, thinking Bernie Sanders is a McGovern. Hillary Clinton had the McGovern map. Hillary Clinton had that McGovern map. But the God forbid they sit there and say, oh, maybe we went too far. Mm-hmm. It's it's I don't know I I'm just of the belief that I think it's an excuse I don't think it's an actual rationale for how, why they do things
3: Yeah I look no I I I think there is a desperation to win right and that's a big part of it uh, But there's also folks who like to be associated with corporate power Right you know it's it's an easier way to do politics than actually going out and grassroots organizing to just raise money Now I distinguish between the the Clinton and the Obama years and and I think there there are real differences there. Uh, but not that I don't have critique of both, but I think that, that Obama, uh, came into office, remember, in a time of real, of incredible economic turbulence. And there may have been some policies and some strategies that weren't successful. Right. But I I do think that, that Obama himself, I I would genuinely say, I think he he intended and, and wanted to, to do more and to do it better. Uh, and then he ended up in that 2010 cycle, losing power. right, And, um, and also, frankly, having a Democratic Party that was not functional. It, it, it really wasn't. And so I, I'm not trying to, and I know some people will, be, will disagree with me, I'm not trying to let Obama off the hook on everything, but I think that's very different than what Clinton did. Clinton, Bill Clinton in the 90s came to power as a leader of the Democratic Leadership Council. As someone who was deeply committed to this vision of, you know, literally saying the era of big government is over, literally saying, you know, we are we are going to govern as a centrist, even center right party in, in so many ways. And, and so I look back on that that Clinton presidency and and I see it really as a um, a, a presidency in which the Democratic Party broke with the New Deal in the most fundamental ways. And, um, and after that break, then everything that came after that became increasingly difficult, right? It was hard to keep the coalitions together at the state level and the local level. Uh, Congress became much more turbulent, keeping it, et cetera. And now the question is some 30 years later, almost 30 years later, is does Joe Biden, who was a product of that time, right, literally was in the thick of it and some of the, the more difficult and unpleasant aspects of it, does Joe Biden recognize that if he is indeed a loyal Democrat, right, his job is to jettison a lot that baggage, to get rid of that and to say, no, we're not going to do it that way anymore. Um, that the Democratic Party will actually be about governing in a big fundamental way. And so today i wrote my my piece for the nation today was about uh representative jamal bowman's response, response. Yeah. to biden's speech and the truth of the matter is i i thought biden gave a very good speech Yeah. but at the end of the day i thought the most compelling statement made last night was that of jamal bowman and his basic premise was that as everybody's saying biden's going big he's still not going big enough right and that's that's the fundamentals of this moment and that's I guess what I take away from all of this, uh, all of our discussion, which I always enjoy having with you, Namiki, because it's I feel it, the it, same. <laughs> but I really I think it's important because this taking apart these elements yes. of our history, and recognizing that long before Walter Mondale, there was a Philip Randolph, yeah. right? And um, and you know hmm. throughout this whole thing, we're going to always find you know touchstones. Of commitment on economic and social and racial justice, uh, but now we also have this great pull of you know kind of compromised politics, and we have a opening now I think to move away from that compromised politics. It is so vital that we listen to people like Jamal Bowman, and mm-hmm. and that we don't simply let the pundits tell us oh. You know, Biden is now the most liberal president in American history or something like that. Oh, but you watch.
1: Oh, I've heard I've seen it. I've seen yeah, it, the yeah, FDR yeah. commentary.
3: Exactly. We spent
1: a lot of time on that
3: one. That's <laughs> all I'm saying, and it's trying to yeah. close. But uh, but it is so very vital to understand that that FDR wouldn't have been FDR. That's it. If That's it hadn't it. been for the movements That's and if crazy. it hadn't been for the pressure on him. And Johnson wouldn't have been Johnson if it it. had been the movements and the pressure on him. And Biden will not be Biden, the Biden that that one would hope he might be, um, without the movements putting pressure on
1: him. I think
3: this-
1: as 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 we close out, I think what's really important was you're saying is I my takeaway from the speech was everything that he's been doing that we are that we're surprised by how far he's gone is a reflection to the crisis that there is no choice for many of these situations other than to respond to the crisis because, you know, basically, uh, uh, the, the, the the curtain's been pulled back and you now realize, oh, Capital can actually go a little bit further because because there's a crisis. Yeah. You got to.
2: Yeah, yeah. With
1: that being said, it is now on the movements to pressure Biden, to pressure Schumer, to pressure Mansion, to pressure Cinema, uh, to do what's right uh, in solving some of these you know very fundamental institutional structural issues and 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 much more. That's where we step in. That's where Jamal Bowman steps in. But that's where the movements step in. He's and going it, to respond also, to the crisis. right yeah,
3: and but it's also the movements is responding to the crisis. We're coming out of COVID. We've got plenty to respond to. Yeah. Um, 400 years of unaddressed racial injustice in this country. Um, you know, a climate crisis that, yeah. that is staring us in the face. You know, we've got the real demands on us. So the, the, the crises are there. But also the movements uh, have a ability to bring ideas to the fore. That's right. And one of the things that, that I would just close off on is saying that when you look at, at for instance, Biden's infrastructure bill, what is in there? $400 billion for the caregivers, right, yeah. and for a care economy. That did not – Biden did not wake up one morning and think, <laughs> hey, you know, that was unions and exactly. grassroots activists, Ajin Poo and others, putting that issue on the table for the last decade, and now it's there. Similarly, when Biden last night, he talked about the $50 minimum wage. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm,
1: I'm, <laughs> that yeah. one was a really... <laughs>
3: but he, yeah, I know, and punch. very frustrating because of the, the relief bill. But the fact that he felt a need to say that, right? Mm-hmm. that was because of movements. That was yeah. because movements had put that in that place. Same with the battle against gun violence. And so we have movements now that have tremendous ability to right. put the right ideas forward. And we have a moment that demands action. And I, you know, I know you always call me an optimist, but um, I, do, I hold out the hope that that combination of moment and movements might give us a love presidency that. that we desperately need. And frankly, a Congress that we desperately need.
1: John Nichols, love having you on. Thanks for, for doing the work. Thanks for getting the weeds. Thanks for teaching us history. Uh, really appreciate you.
3: I'm honored to be with you as always.
1: Thank you. All right, everybody. We will be back in like literally two seconds because we don't have a lot of time. Once again, I'm going long. This is the week of me going long on the show. I'm just getting really great guests. That's what happens when you have great guests. Uh, We have Run Chowdhury and Rep Rab on. John, interview Rep Rab. Oh, you missed him. (laughs) Speaking of great leadership. All right, they'll be back with our panel. They would fire me from cable news because I can't stick to a clock suddenly. I used to be so good at this and now I'm just like getting entranced. All right, we've got to run Chowdhury, who is the host of the committee. (laughs) Exactly. Host of the committee program and rep Chris Rabb, straight out of northwest Philadelphia. He is the uh, representative of the 200th district of Pennsylvania's very corrupt legislature, but he is not. Um, all right, real quick, real quick elevator pitch because we got a big day on Monday because our 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 pal here, Ron Chowdhury, is launching a show right here yeah. on our channel called the Committee Program. Hence the committee program. Can you give us a little background, uh, Ron? What is this? This this what are you doing? What, yeah, is this I a mean, hijacking look. of our channel? Is this a
0: coup. Uh, yes, it absolutely is. You will fly this you will fly this channel to Cuba, please. We're just trying to finish where where you're leaving off, which is sort of keeping the conversation going, but on a more global scale, uh, looking at the progressive movement in Europe, in Latin America, uh, and kind of trying to foster some of that global solidarity in the left that we see fomenting so effectively on the right. So it should be fun. Unlike your show, we will be recording bits and bobs uh, all week and then putting it together uh, on one Monday, spectacular at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: For three hours, p.m. right? Three Europe. hours. 10 p.m. in Europe for Europeans. 3 p.m. till 6 p.m., guys. That is right. a whammy. That is beautiful. So it's go good check good. it out. You're already subscribed. If you're, I mean, listen, okay. If you're watching the show and you haven't subscribed, um, okay, do it now. But also uh, subscribe because now you get an extra show. This is very exciting.
0: There you go. I mean, look, you don't want to lose money on this whole thing.
1: You don't. We give you a great deal. Like, let me tell you, uh, I know some shows that charge more on Patreon, and you only get one a week. You get four on ours. And then you're going to go over to Runs and give him money, too, because that's how socialism works. Okay. Um, And meanwhile, we're fighting the algorithm gods. Guys, uh, I just came back from Guatemala. And I have a funny little story, because this this next clip uh, is... (laughs) So I was in Guatemala. I was reading the book, Bitter Fruit. It's like a four-year-old book. Go check mm-hmm. it out. It's an amazing book about United mm-hmm. Fruit Company. I'm like in it. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I had a transformative experience. I get to the airport. They did not accept my COVID test, <laughs> even though I've been vaccinated. Um, so they didn't accept my COVID test. And then they made me, basic story, they made me take another COVID test. It was like, I almost, they are like, you have three minutes to go 19 gates away to get to your airplane. So I'm like, I'm like annoyed. I'm like effing capitalism. i spent $300 on two COVID tests that I didn't even need because I'm vaccinated. I'm like, I'm just like angry and I'm reading bitter fruit. And I'm like, oh, this government's so corrupt. And this president here is a right wing not. Okay, get to the gate. And you're like, your flight is delayed. And then I'm like, what is going on at my gate? There's like hundreds of people and cameras. Everywhere. Like, There's a press conference happening at my gate. And I look at him like, did they just say the president of Guatemala is here? So right in front of me was the president, the, the, the far right wing, speaking of international right wing uh, leaders, who's w- probably worse than Trump, if you can believe it. No problem. Um, yeah. yeah. This Guatemalan president was right there in front of me. Now, let's flash forward to today's news. Kamala Harris, uh, our vice president, has, has decided to step up into a run ter- territory and taking on the far right. Can we play this clip? There are also long-standing issues that um, are often called the root causes of immigration. We are looking at the issue of poverty and the lack, therefore, of economic opportunities, the issue of extreme weather conditions uh, and the lack of climate adaptation, as well as corruption and the lack of good governance, and violence against women, indigenous people, LGBTQ people, and Afro-descendants.
0: The English language is just such a kick in the head sometimes, you know, like just things happen, stuff's happening, we're not sure, mistakes were made, bombs were dropped. <laughs> I don't, who, who dropped those bombs? <laughs> who, could even who, say who, who, took,
1: who created a coup that unseated the leftist government that would have given Mayan people their farms again? Who, who did this, Rep. Rab? Who do you think had, I mean, listen, this this leader is not a great guy, but I'm just very curious how Vice President Kamala Harris forgot like a big Part of this equation. What would that equation be, Rob? Rob you're a student of history. You know your. You know
4: your shit. <laughs> I'm just, that's curious. So you're saying there's a connection between U.S. foreign policy and corrupt right-wing leaders, uh-uh. and how that disrupts the global south and immigration patterns to the U.S. and the corporations who exploit their their labor as undocumented. Is that what you're trying to suggest? I would not in writing (laughs) that's that's very conspiratorial but i want to say something about that um conspiracies can be true in fact conspiracies um are often true and there are conspiracies that have been documented that are now considered fact so any notion around white supremacy around police terror all the things that have been now validated by corporate media in just just a couple years um, were put in the conspiracy theorist um, pool up until now. So for those, <laughs> they found who the Loch Ness
0: monster living in the pool, and they're like, "There it is! You can see it. Yeah. There it
4: is. There it is." So it's interesting that you you you're saying, "Well, if there's a piece left out of this political algorithm around all oh, this stuff that's going down there, it's bad." without any connection to how dirty our hands are collectively. Um, And, you know, that is problematic, right? That is a, that is, that transcends political affiliation, um, in the, you know, the corporate duopoly that that is so unduly influential, uh, in all aspects of society. It is also an indictment of corporate media Mm. because, um, we have um, people talking about immigration in corporate media and talking about how bad the previous uh, administration was without talking about the Democratic complicity in these systems um, and have and have not brought on a single Central American to discuss their own, <laughs> to discuss on their own behalf.
1: Thank you. So that was the really, when I was in, and I've talked about this in the show um, a bit, I did an opening on this a few weeks ago if you guys wanna go back and check it out. Um, I met a guy who the best part of my trip was, I took a very long hike. Uh, in um, Laguatan, in, in in largest lake in Central America, and my guide was this mean man named Cesar Morales. He didn't speak any English, and he decided because he was courageous and he literally intentionally wanted to tell me his story about how he had been to the United States once before, and he was of course put in two and a half years ago into one of these uh, border uh, border camps. And the story from his perspective was literally like. 150 times worse than any of the stories I had read because stuff that had not been illustrated. Were let's say he was put. They put shackles around his neck, his wrists, and his legs. They lined. I mean, just there's so many elements of his story that were horrifying. Mm -hmm. To be able to get the seven dollars that he that they were going to give him to from Guatemala City, it's like six hours away to his town to be able to get home because that's something that they have to do when they send you back. Finally, after they work you to death and put you in different like they put him in a worker's camp where they paid him to farm $1 a day. This is ice, this is our government. So I'd never heard this before. And he's telling me detailed, I mean, literally like this is, and, and, and I went through, you know, obviously my reporters, so I like asked him different elements of this. And I said, well, why do you want to tell me this? And he says, I don't think, just like I didn't know how bad it was at the border. I don't think you knew, you know, how bad it is at the border. I'm like, no, we know it's pretty bad. He's like, I don't, and then I'm like, oh my God, you're right.
0: Like, oh, turns out. Yeah.
1: Turns out Cesar is right. Not to mention he had loans. He's going to be paying off these loans for uh, 10 years for fourteen hundred dollars, by the way, fourteen hundred dollars to pay the coyotes. Iran, I mean, this is something that you touch on all the time. Like, how do you get away with this? How does Vice President Kamala Harris sit there knowing very well she's been briefed? Her, her
0: dad was a Marxist. Oh, so. She knows, she yes. knows, she knows she's heard. She knows all these things. That's not what it's about. And it's not, oh, okay. it, it, and it's, it, <laughs> I mean, hey, listen, that's not what it's about. No, <laughs> that's just, it, it's, it's, she, it, it's just almost a reflexive laziness. There is an interesting conversation to be had about queer rights in latin america for sure you know the role the church has had all these things historical factors you know uh, how poverty plays into it and there's a lot of things the u.s can do about it but this sort of self-reflexive thing to sort of be able to shame and yell at people who are poorer than you is just sort of emblematic of politics bipartisan politics uh i would even say uh, you know, across many different demographics. The idea of just punching down and you're not a good enough parent and you don't do things right. And maybe you don't treat your gay people in your country, right? Because that's sort of the almost parochial way it's coming out. It's not coming out as a as a, a fundamental human civil rights issue. It's coming in of like, why are you feeding your kids fried chicken for breakfast kind of thing, you exactly. know?
1: Exactly. Oh my gosh, and that's it, so profound, yeah.
0: And it makes really, me mad really uh, because it's, it's backpedaling from where we were with Obama in a lot of ways, and certainly a lot of your audience, again, is going to have you know huge bones to pick with Obama and Obama foreign policy. But kind of the apologizer in chief uh, who ran—he ran on these things. Like we ought to have a conversation with Guatemala. We ought to tell Chile sorry, you know. And maybe we did not, you know, do those things as well as we could. But that was a conversation Democratic Party and mainstream elements of it were ready to have. Talk about Mossadegh Talk about Indonesia. Talk about all of these places.
1: It's interesting you say that because. Um, you know, obviously we're a big colonial country and we've had this patriarchal role over Guatemala and and the global south. Her tone was that. Her tone was essentially what, you know, the way the Republicans talk to poor people. That's how she was talking to the Guatemalans. And and granted, you know, their leader is a piece of shit, but it wasn't like this happened under his leadership. He's just the continuation of many, many years of of, of this leadership.
4: Chris, rap, yeah. rap, sorry. So if that's Rob, me, No, <laughs> well, I just you know, people. It, it's a moniker that my mother has approved, and I don't want to disappoint her. Um, but I think that's the difference between a politician and a public servant. Mm. You know, it, it's so easy to go after the low-hanging fruit and the symptom chasing. Oh, look what they're doing to their queer folk and the, in, but you don't talk about the systemic issues. Um, and you don't talk about your complicity. So I've, I've, I'm not gonna say I've mastered it, but you know how I've gotten really good at this is when I talk about police terror mm-hmm. and I say, and it's, it's dangerous work for me because I'm a black man who drives, mm. right? And lives mm-hmm. in Philadelphia where I'm as afraid of the cops as I am of, you know, other folks who are, you know, uh, rocking the illegal guns. So I say this at great peril, but it's true. I'm not asking for a higher level of transparency and accountability than the one I accept when I became an elected official. Yeah. Right. Interesting. You people can find out damn near anything they want about me. They can find out what I'm doing every single day, how I voted, what legislation I've operated. Uh, I put forth um, how much money I brought back to the district. All of that stuff is out there publicly available to anyone on on the planet. And yet, we don't have that type of scrutiny or the, the opacity that protects all these other institutions. But I also acknowledge that I work, and you always say it at the beginning of your show, this segment, that I work in a really corrupt institution. I could be very offended by that and then say, oh, no, it's not. No, you know, there are things that we could reform. And all. no, I'm saying I work in a cesspool. Yeah. If I don't acknowledge that I work in a cesspool, you can't trust me that's interesting you can't trust me and i'm saying i'm working in the cesspool because i as an elected official i have to acknowledge that the cesspool exists and explain why it's so bad how it hurts the average person how it hurts my neighbor and constituent and what we can do to transform it you can't transform something you don't fully understand mm. right and if you're mm-hmm. if, if if this politician who is our vice president doesn't have the, the the political will or courage to say, look, we are complicit. These are symptoms of imperialism and militarism and capitalism. And it, it, if she can't do that, and maybe that wasn't, there, there's a right moment for everything. But it's it, it should have happened long ago. It's interesting, you is, missed.
1: it's interesting you say something, because obviously the, you have a reparations bill. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, we are so as a society, as an American, you know, United States society, we are so allergic to dealing with our truths, the truth of the capitalist country that we live in, in a way that Germany a run you live in Germany was, I mean, forced to <laughs> in a very harsh way. Some call it an
0: overcorrection, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that we're, we're, we've got a lot of some it.
1: say. <laughs> um, or South Africa, or, 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 I mean, truth and reconciliation committees to, you know, and, and there's there, there are questions. Yeah, from. it's Rapp, ugly. Rapp it's
0: messy. It. It's family. It's what life is. You know, imagine the speech face- that was thrown out where Kamala goes down there and has a messy conversation about our messy history in this continent yeah. that we all just found ourselves in at the expense of native peoples and just like what a profoundly different moment that would be where it's like hey we're your rich neighbor up north you know but like we actually came to have a real talk about what's yeah. what to do and not just the usual usual not just the easiest what's- easiest
1: Oh, it's so crazy about that and I understand that maybe maybe the, from their perspective they're trying to mitigate or expose the rising far right as you are a run, right so there, there's an opportunity there and 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 it, and it can be it can be um I don't know diluted if she were to suddenly say Oh, by the way, as I'm talking to a Nazi, an essential essentially is a Nazi. By the way, um, when the CIA and the FBI came down here and staged a coup and 500,000 people died, even though maybe if they just waited like three months later, the right wing would have risen up anyways. Maybe (laughs) when we did that, because all of our CIA people and FBI people were also on the board of United Fruit who had big stakes and it was all because of land reform, which was a very reformist issue. It wasn't even radical. Like maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have done that. But like if she were to talk about any of these truths, which these are well documented, like the the son of the New York Times guy wrote the book. It's like not, this isn't like radical by any means at this point. And it's also, we're not, We're not doing that anymore. Like that's the crazy part. We're not, it's not like we still have a stake in that business. There are other things that are happening in the global South, but we don't have a stake in that. So what I don't understand is why not just say it? Why not just apologize? One line, leave the stage, go to an indigenous community because it's Guatemala and very large indigenous population of Guatemala, Mayan population go and talk and and go farm i don't know just do something
0: because i right, think there is a there is a reliance and a belief and probably even you know uh, soup song of, of truth sprinkled in there to the idea that if America is perceived to be the thing we all want it to be, the thing we know it quite isn't but want it to be, that that is soft power and that that is soft power that we can wield. But when we've seen diplomatic corps wield it effectively and we're led to believe that right now we have the best of the best of the best, uh, we know that actually talking past a leader and to the people of a country is a hell of a way to conduct diplomacy and a hell of a way to move soft power around. And how great would it be? You talk tough and you're like, and now I want to talk to the Guatemalan people. And there's a lot that we share. And you can, you know, I'm like, I'm almost like wanting to write it right now. It's like, know. Out. It's like,
1: oh, man, rep, rep, should we take a trip to Guatemala and you can speak to be like, listen, I I'm the same party as her. But that, that's also something that used to happen, too. In you, When when leadership was not doing it, you had delegations of congressional members who go, mm-hmm. and they still do that to an extent. But they would have big speeches and say, listen, my leader's not, but I am going to talk to you as a representative of the government. So Rep. Rav, are we going to Guatemala? Are you going to talk?
4: Yeah, I'm talk, down. Talk talk? Let's yeah, I'm do down. it. Um, and you know, Run. We, we have folks it. who are coming over in the farming community in Pennsylvania. It is a huge industry. There's a lot of undocumented folks from Central America. And you know who's speaking up for them for purely self-interested purposes are the farmers where there is labor shortage. And they're saying, I don't like how ICE is treating my workers who happen to be undocumented. And we want them to have access to driver's licenses so that they're not caught up in the system and ultimately deported. Um, So you're having conservative local farmers on the right side of the issue for pure self-interest, right? We have to talk about how our histories and our fates are intertwined. We have to tell that story. And as Arun said, it ain't pretty, but it's okay. Because as I promote my, my forthcoming reparations bill, I'm pushing against a lot of walls that have been put up, not based on facts, not based on a personal injury, how it's going to hurt an individual, but because this mythology that people have embraced – without any understanding of the histories that have um, to, that moving forward, have hurt them as white people, mm, as white people. And that's how you connected to like the tipped minimum wage. If you're a QAnon loving, yeah. um, single white mom in, in rural PA and you're earning $2.83 working at Denny's and you don't, you can't make ends meet and trying mm-hmm. to feed your your daughter, you need to know that that TIP minimum wage is a legacy of slavery exactly. and that you are actually being victimized by white supremacy as white as driven snow as you may be. And it impacts negatively everyone. Because the, there's the economic,
1: model. the economic model of the time when TIP started was the labor force was slaves and then it is expanded to not not with racism, the intentions of racism, but but just exploiting labor altogether.
4: Exploiting yeah. labor from it started with <laughs> enslaved labor. Yes, right. And it moved to those folks who are, um, you know, the precarious, right? <laughs> and but who's telling the? I have found that when I've used this narrative, it's almost always the first time people have heard it mm. in almost any community I go to, and I can see lights go off. And it's not because I'm a genius. Yeah. It's not because I'm the most eloquent. But if you tell the story and you reach people where they are and you're not shaming them, you're saying this is how we are impacted and you understand and you make it about we and not us versus them, then you create an opportunity to learn and work together. And I'm not an optimist by nature, but I do know having practiced this quite a bit now over the past two years around reparations, which is one of the most, you know, tough subjects there is. If I can do it here on that issue, we can do it on, on almost anything. What do you think, Iran? Doable? I think that's right. I think doable. That's cool, right. consensus.
1: Okay, okay, so we have two things. Consensus on, on, on how we speak about really uh, complicated issues that um, are, are, are <laughs> have divided us since the beginning. Uh, and we're going to Guatemala. Again, I'm, I there. I'm a pro now. I know how to get there. And we're going to speak right. to we're going to bring Cesar along because he's willing to speak. And he's willing to speak on camera, by the way, which is an amazing oh. aspect of this. But he doesn't have Wi-Fi, so we need to get cameras there. So let's go talk to Cesar. I'm just going to brainstorm this out loud. And then Rep. Rab, um, yep. as a as a representative of our country, a, uh, an elected representative of our country. Listen, I don't have the big lobbying dollars. Um, You might have to, well, I can't pay for you anyways, but there, well, actually I could, you're in Pennsylvania. What am I talking about? That's right. Yeah. I'll give you my car. Do you like, it's not my car anymore, but what do you feel about a 12 year old Prius? (laughs) Is that
0: what is it's a the value dented <laughs> it's a
1: little dented it's not an elon musk tesla does that
0: get us on the <laughs> lobbying market in pennsylvania right no it does not but if it gives me to, to point a to b it'll then... get you a parking spot in philly that's all it'll get it you. has
1: a couple of bernie stickers on it <laughs> kind of faded a peace sticker on it uh, no one eight sticker on it from like literally 11 years ago 12 years ago um but great gas mileage all right so we're taking a trip to guatemala stay tuned This will be a great fundraiser to pay for everybody, but Rep. (laughs) Rab, and (laughs) and we promise that that you will be speaking on behalf of the rest of the country that like was frustrated with Kamala Harris's come. No pressure, no pressure, no no big deal. Uh, You do it all the time. It's just just totally normal. All right, go check out the committee program Monday, 3 p.m. right here. Three hours. We're gonna disperse uh, the show throughout the week, but you gotta go check it out live um, because this is exciting. Arun is doing this. He's he's taken the show globally, and then maybe when we're doing live events again, because now we can go to Europe if you are vaccinated. Hi, we can do something in Europe. It'd be kind of a fun yes, thing. Yes, we could
0: actually use the committee headquarters studio. It would be perfect. Oh
1: my God, so fancy! Oh, I just like got a that. wall behind me. glad I'm coming. There's nothing in
0: the studio yet. Don't be too don't be too impressed, but we have the name. We've branded it. I love all it. Brand. All
1: right, adios, hasta, see you next time. We got some shout outs and I got to run because I got to go do an interview with somebody else because I'm doing this documentary and it's like so much stuff happening. Shout outs, all right, we got Pete from Oakland saying, it's wild as the Vice President Harris admonished the president of Guatemala for quote, root causes of migration without taking a single breath to acknowledge the involvement of her own government, shameful. Agreed, I think we all agree. All round of applause, we agree. JR Dozer, thank you for the love. And Zach Sherman says, keep up the good work, Naomi. I may not always get to participate in the chat, but I do really like the show. Gracias. Thank you so much. Prairie Fire Kowalski, what is my favorite Greek food? Well, my mom's side of the family is from northern Greece, actually Albania, but a Greek village. Uh, they were known for pitas, like spanakopita, spinach pie, tiropita, cheese pie, but there were like hundreds of them. Like whatever your your vegetable was that was growing in the garden or your meat that you just slaughtered that week, you turned turn it into a pita. And my grandmother used to do it by hand and she was the best at it. Um, I can't, well, first thing, I don't eat it that often, but like, I don't eat any of that frozen stuff. I have to eat it homemade. It has to be like, it's very rare I eat it anymore, but there's a lot of butter in it. A lot of, uh, it's, it's very thin, great. That's my favorite Greek food. So it's not really something that you can find unless you go to Northern Greece and you find an old grandmother who knows how to make phyllo dough from scratch. But, you know, if you ever get an opportunity to go to Northern Greece and do that, that's the real pizza. <laughs> um, I also like dolmas. the Dolmas. Shout outs, shout outs, shout outs. Harvey K is in the live chat, watching his friend John Nichols, watching me. What better than that? Thanks to Harvey K for joining us in the live chats and huge thanks to all of our moderators on YouTube and Twitch for building those algorithms and keeping our spaces troll free. They're coming for us. We will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to Dorsey. Thank you to our whole team. Uh, Gotta run. Gotta wrap it up. I'm wearing a blazer today because I got to go be professional and interview someone. So I will be back later. See you on tomorrow. Fun Friday. Fun Friday! Tomorrow. See ya. 3 p.m. Stay in solidarity.